This Quorum episode this month will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. We'll link the URL in the show notes, follow the link, complete three questions, and get CME credit. Without any further ado, let's get into it. I think every nephron is, is precious. And I think in the CKD native kidney patient is not different than the CKD transplant patient. We think of the transplant as this gift from another person or a family, and it is. But our own kidneys are gifts too. <laughs> That's Dr. Martha Pavlakis, a transplant nephrologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and the chair of the Kidney Transplant Committee of Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. A mouthful, but basically she's a big deal. Welcome to the Coram Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and I'm joined by... Hey, everyone. I'm Dr. Marcus Fu, a nephrology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. This is an amazing opportunity to come onto the show and discuss the best renal replacement therapy around, the transplant. Ah, we did learn that in the pre-transplant episode, so I'm excited to learn so much more. Let's get into what we'll be covering today. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1, types of immunosuppression. What are the common side effects we see with tacrolimus and mycophenolate? Pearl 2, medication reconciliation. What medications increase the amount of tacrolimus and increase toxicity? Pearl 3, AKI and the transplant patient. What causes of acute kidney injury are unique to the renal transplant recipients? Pearl 4, infections in the transplant patient. When a patient has a fever, what are the viral syndromes that we should work up and when? Pearl 5, life with a kidney transplant. What are signs and symptoms of rejection? And which cancers are increased in prevalence in the transplant population? Okay, so often I will encounter a patient who is post-kidney transplant, and they're on a bunch of these immunosuppressive medications that I have a very vague recollection from some board exam, and I haven't really synthesized the practical things I should know or expect about these meds. So what I tend to tell patients is I introduce the concept of immune suppression, and I literally say it the same way every single time. I say, um, unless you have an identical twin, which so far I haven't heard that you had, the kidney comes from somebody who is enough genetically unlike you that your body treats that tissue as if it's an infection. And your immune system, which is geared up to fight infections, will actually attack the kidney unless we give you specific medications to lower your body's immune system. These medications are called immune suppressives, and you have to take them for the life of the transplant. It's not like once the transplant's working, you can stop the meds. Your body never forgets. The body never forgets. Oh, I cannot wait to use that the next time I'm counseling patients on the importance of these immunosuppressive meds. The patient usually is discharged to home on just tacrolimus and mycophenolate with or without prednisone. And that is true for, I would say, over 90% of transports done in this country. And that's where the fun begins. Aha. Uh -huh. So let the fun begin with those big three maintenance meds that prevent rejection of the transplanted kidney. 
Yeah. And I guess because we don't usually see the induction immunosuppression that happens right after transplant, we can just focus on the maintenance meds that we see more commonly, tacrolimus, mycophenolate, and prednisone. So let's start with tacrolimus and its sister cyclosporin. They are part of the calcineurin inhibitor group, and tacrolimus and cyclosporin work by blocking the production of IL-2 in T-cells, and T-cells normally activate other immune cells. Okay, so if there's no immune cell activation, that means that there's no rejection of the new kidney, right? Yeah, Shreya, that's exactly the hope, and we know that things get pretty dicey when it comes to timing tacrolimus just right. Oh, yes. That brings up that pain point I remember too well, which is trying to get that trough level at that right time to let us know if we're doing a good job in keeping that immune system in check. There, There's ideally every 12 hours and we get a trough level at the sort of 11 hours and 59 minutes before the next dose. So again, in a perfect world, that's how we would do it. And what tends to happen is a transplant patient hits the door of the ER. Maybe they took their drug two hours ago. Now somebody gets a critical tacrolimus level called from the lab and says, oh, this is critically high. That's Dr. Karen True, a transplant nephrologist at UNC Chapel Hill, describing something that happens all the time, especially on the floors, right? When a patient didn't get their morning dose on time, but they did get that tacro level with their AM labs. And the same thing happens with cyclosporin. Tacrolimus is now less popular sibling. Okay, so pretty much unless you know that the trough is obtained as much as possible right before that next dose is due in 12 hours, it's a random level and, like sad to say, kind of useless. And to add a little bit more spice here, stopping the tacrolimus because of a random trough is something that you should never do. Ugh, it sounds like you're saying that from some painful experiences. That's right, Shreya. <laughs> And so I guess trying to get that trough level to make sure our patient's immune system is under control is important, but we're also getting that level to make sure we're avoiding any toxicity. So it's a little bit tricky, but the, the calcineurin inhibitors like cyclosporin and tacrolimus, their biggest toxicity is neurotoxicity. So tremulousness, headaches, perioral numbness, super common, especially at higher levels. Tacrolimus can cause hypertension. Tacrolimus can cause some hair loss, which is, is particularly our female patients don't that at all. The men don't either, but mostly the females. Cyclosporin, interestingly, can cause hair growth. One of the other, it can cause sort of harder to control hypertension. It can cause gingival hyperplasia. I'm going to add that tacrolimus and cyclosporin have been known to cause new onset diabetes after transplant, or NODAT. And this is seen more commonly in tacro use than in cyclosporin use. Is that what the cool kids are abbreviating it to now? No dat? <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, nephrologists are the coolest specialty and you better know dat. Oh, <laughs> that was good. That was good. Okay. So it sounds like with calcineurin inhibitors, tacrolimus, cyclosporin, it causes neurosymptoms like headaches, tremulousness, and things that we don't love to see in primary care, hypertension new onset diabetes after transplant, no doubt, especially if they're on tacro. And then more specifically, tacrolimus can cause some hair loss and cyclosporin can cause some hair growth. That's right. So let's move on to the second transplant maintenance medication, mycophenolic acid. Its prodrug is mycophenolate, which is what we'll be dealing with most often. Okay. And then Marcus, can you remind us how exactly does mycophenolate work in post-transplant patients? So mycophenolate works by stopping purine synthesis. 
Oof, I have not thought about purines synthesis in a while. Me neither, Treya. You know, immune cells are making so much DNA and RNA that are made from purines. So mycophenolate sounds like a perfect drug to slow down those immune cells. Yeah. And I guess when I think about medications that slow down cell division, I do start to worry about side effects. The anti-metabolites like mycophenolate, mycophenolate mofetil, mycophenolic acid, azathioprine, those affect rapidly dividing cells. So bone marrow toxicity and gut toxicity. Those are, are you know, the two most common. So leukopenia, uh, anemia, thrombocytopenia, and uh, diarrhea and stomach upset. Very common in those patients. So basically with bone marrow toxicity, patients on mycophenolate can expectedly have some pancytopenia, particularly leukopenia. And then with gut toxicity, they're going to maybe feel bloating, diarrhea, GI discomfort. Part of the way we deal with side effects from, from cells up in Fornic is to space out the doses. So this is not a med where you have to give it exactly 12 hours apart. So if you have somebody who's taking, you know, 540 milligrams twice a day of my Fornic, which is three pills twice a day, and they're having a lot of GI side effects, sometimes we'll have them to two in the morning and two in the afternoon and two at night. It's just, sometimes that helps. So the takeaway here is that some patients take a big dose twice a day. You can split it up into smaller doses three times a day or spread out the doses to offload the GI tract to make it more palatable. And I guess the good news here with mycophenolate is you're not chasing levels exactly 12 hours like we were with Tacro or Cyclosporin. And we kind of have that opportunity to space out mycophenolate as we wish. And the other thing we can do is keep in mind that mycophenolic acid can come in two main forms. Mycophenolate mofetil or Celsept, which is the original drug, but can give you belly aches. And there's this enteric-coated mycophenolate sodium, also known as myfortic, which is less likely to give you GI upset. Hmm, I feel like that's an important distinction to keep in mind. How am I going to remember this? Mycophenolate mofetil versus mycophenolate sodium. Huh. Maybe thinking about the one that ends with sodium is our friend, the one that we like, less GI upset. Maybe for the first time, the one that ends with sodium is our friend. As a nephrologist, please don't hate on my sodium. And I know for a fact, actually, that sodium is my friend. <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay. How about we round out the maintenance trio with prednisone? I will say, though, oftentimes I'll see patients post-transplant. Some are just on tacro and mycophenolate, and then some are on ticrolimus, mycophenolate, plus prednisone. So I'm curious, what's up with the discrepancy here? So I love a little bit of drama, and I noticed that the up-to-date authors and specialty guidelines, Kate Diego in this case, disagree about the role of steroids. So Kate Diego says that steroids should not be involved in maintenance and up-to-date says that they should. What's up with that? Kate Diego guidelines are really, you know, it's G is global. So they're designed to sort of create a standard across the whole globe of transplanting centers that people can use as a basis to then develop their own um, uh, their own protocols based on local standards of care and 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 other guidelines. Steroid withdrawal got really popular um, once we had tacrolimus and mycophenolate because it was shown that those two drugs are were so much better at preventing rejection than the old combination of cyclosporine and azathioprine. So most programs have their own protocols, and even within those programs, some patients get prednisone and some don't. So if you were transplanted in O2, you are likely on a triple regimen. We wouldn't change it. If you're doing well, our steroid continuation is reserved for the following conditions. Number one, there 
ESRD is caused by either HIV nephropathy or IgA nephropathy. And then we continue steroids from the time of transplanting people who we deem to be HLA medium or high risk, which we define as antibodies against the donor or so-called DSAs, either historically or current at the time of transplant. Those people stay on steroids for life. So we'll get a lot more into what DSAs are in Pearl too, but it sounds like a lot depends in terms of risk, benefits, and what the underlying condition the patient has in terms of starting steroids. Steroids are great for immune suppression, but as we talked about in our recent steroids episode, come with a ton of side effects. That's right, Treya. And the last thing our reviewers thought was important to sneak into this section was a newer kit on the block, Volatisept. It works by blocking T-cell activation, surprise, surprise. It's well tolerated <laughs> and, you know, it's administered by monthly infusion as minimal toxicity, so you're not chasing those levels. The only thing is, is that it can only be given in patients who are EBV IgG positive for fear of PTLD, which we'll talk about later. Ah, yeah, that's a great point, I guess. I'll look out for Volatisept. What a great word on future medication recs. So let me recap then the most common maintenance meds that we are seeing, at least at the moment, with kidney transplants, tacrolimus, mycophenolate, prednisone. With tacrolimus, those troughs really matter and try to get them as close as possible right before the next dose for a true trough. Side effects include neurotoxicity, hypertension, hair loss. And with mycophenolate, it affects purine synthesis. So places that have a lot of cell turnover, like the bone marrow and gut, are affected. And there's two different forms, mycophenolate mofetil and mycophenolate sodium. GI upset's more common in the mofetil one, and the sodium one is our friend and causes less GI upset. Sodium is your friend. Lastly, prednisone may or may not be on a patient's med list based on pros and cons of being on chronic steroids and those side effects and the particular program's criteria for using steroids. So we've been talking a lot about medications, and we just heard at the top of Pearl 1 the importance of taking these anti-rejection medications every day. So I'm curious, how should we approach the med rec in a patient who's post-kidney transplant? I would say the most important things when somebody gets seen either in the outpatient clinic or admitted to the hospital is a really good medication reconciliation. And I mean really good. Not handing them the list and saying, here's your med list. That's not adequate. I really mean naming the drugs, seeing if the person recognizes the drug, knows what it's for, knows how many milligrams they've taken, and whether or not they're actually taking it as prescribed. Uh, we do that in clinic with our patients every single time. Many of our patients use pill boxes and are on top of their refill schedule and really are quite good. But I think medication adherence and making sure that all the different EMRs and all the different providers are all in agreement, not on what the patient's supposed to be on, but what they're actually taking is critical. And that prevents a lot of medication errors, which can be kidney and or life-threatening. Just for the people in the back, the med rec is worth triple checking in a transplant patient. Yeah. Sometimes I like to ask, you know, when I'm going over the med history, hey, how many times a week do you miss your medications? And kind of normalize that, hey, I'm not as great taking my medications and Maybe more things will kind of come out from that conversation. Yeah, because if we can open that up and establish some rapport, we can understand how much a patient is at risk for rejection if they're not taking their meds on time or missing doses. Yeah, so I'm curious, how bad is it if a patient doesn't take their immunosuppression on time? Is it okay to miss a dose here and there? 
what exactly happens if someone doesn't take their tacrolimus on time every once in a while? Let's say I have no anti-HLA antibodies. I get a transplant from somebody with a different HLA profile than me, which is going to happen unless it's, you know, an identical twin or a perfect match sibling. And then I, maybe I miss my immune suppression. I don't take it regularly. My body starts to form antibodies against the donor's HLA, which are expressed in the kidney. Those are called DSAs. And one of the scariest things we see is the development of a de novo DSA. And it's often delineated as DN, small DN, capital DSA. So a DN DSA, um, de novo, means that this person is being under immunosuppressed and they are starting to form antibodies in the blood, which are identifiable, that could cause an antibody-mediated rejection. And what I tell patients is that these de novo DSAs are like armed drones and they're circulating and they are threatening the kidney. They may not be attacking quite yet, but they're always a threat. So DSAs stand for donor-specific antibodies. And wow, that image of de novo DSAs being armed drones circulating around hoping to take down the precious donor kidney is powerful. And I guess just reinforces that this is nothing to play around with. So we track people with de novo DSAs very carefully. We do a management biopsy. We sometimes increase their immunosuppression, trying very hard to prevent um, a, a rejection. I do try to reinforce the importance of taking medications and immunosuppression on time every day with patients, no exceptions. But oddly enough, in my experience, when I've seen transplant patients get upset, it's when their meds are late and when they're worried about that next dose not coming on time. Yeah, transplant patients are so on top of it. And sometimes it's us ordering the meds BID instead of Q12 or the meds taking a while to come up from pharmacy. And Maybe this is a good segue into thinking about another part of the med rec that comes up also, which is drug-drug interactions. The drug-drug interactions that affect transplant patients are so common. It's why we as the transplant nephrology team consult on every transplant patient with a working kidney or pancreas transplant in the hospital, whether or not they're admitted for a kidney indication. Um, I have heard people say, oh, we didn't consult you because it's a stroke. It has nothing to do with the kidney. And I say everything has to do with the kidney. <laughs> and it's really not so much the kidney. It's the med interactions. You know, that's helpful because sometimes I don't have a specific question for transplant nephrology. And I'm not sure, should I involve them? Should I not? I don't want to bother them if I have nothing to really ask them. But it's good to know how much ownership that they take over their patients. And it seems at the very least, along with our pharmacy colleagues, can keep a pretty eagle eye on those drug interactions. So you get somebody on tacrolimus and you very well-meaningly start them on diltiazem, their tacro levels are going to shoot up. Um, erythromycin, clarithromycin, uh, ZPAC, all of these very commonly used medications will shoot up the tacro levels, fluconazole. To recap, meds that will raise the tacrolimus levels are calcium channel blockers like diltiazem, antifungals, and macrolides. And on the flip side, meds that will make the tacrolimus level go down are anti-seizure medications and antibiotics like ciprofloxacin. While we're at it, antacids like calcium and magnesium carbonate and aluminum hydroxide can bind to mycophenolate and reduce its conversion to the active mycophenolic acid. Hmm. Okay, so PPIs can raise that gastric pH enough to prevent mycophenolate's conversion to its active form and limit that absorption. So the recommendation from our pharmacy colleagues is to space out those PPIs from when you take your mycophenolate. Ah, that's a good trick to know. 
And I'm glad we're covering this because, you know, in a busy day, I don't know if it's okay to admit this out loud, it is very easy to skip through those pop-up alerts. If you're giving one dose of fluconazole for like a vaginal yeast infection, it's fine. It's not, it it might pop up a warning like on Epic or whatever, but if you're giving one dose, it's not going to appreciably change those levels. So I would not be concerned about that. But if you were going to put somebody on a prolonged course of an antifungal medicine, um, certainly we would want to know and kind of, it doesn't mean that they can't have those medicines. It just means that we need to probably adjust the doses of their maintenance immunosuppression. Yeah. And another thing to keep in mind is that the clinical context is important too. Things like diarrhea can mess up how tacrolimus gets absorbed and metabolized. So diarrhea is just one example, and it's a really good one because it is also idiosyncratic. You may have one person putting out two liters of liquid stool a day, and their tacro levels stay exactly the same. And another person with less diarrhea becomes terrifically tacrotoxic. And then another person who was tacrotoxic with diarrhea, the diarrhea resolves, the tacro goes right back to normal. And another person where it takes three weeks after resolution of diarrhea for the tacro levels to go back. And this inability of ours to predict who your patient is or what paradigm they're going to fall into is why we check levels so frequently. Oh my gosh, what a toss up with how things like diarrhea can really impact those tacro levels and I think it makes me really appreciate why the nephrologist or the transplant team really wants that tacro level and the importance of getting it right and checking it right before that next dose so we can interpret it correctly. So just to summarize, each missed dose of immunosuppression leads to formation of new donor-specific antibodies, those ARM drones, which are bad for the life of the kidney. Some medications to keep an eye out for that can raise tacrolimus in the serum are calcium channel blockers, antifungals, and macrolides. Some meds that decrease tacrolimus are anti-seizure meds and ciprofloxacin. And always, always, always talk to your transplant team when transplant patients are admitted. Pretty please. Okay, now that we've covered medications that these patients are on, and I feel like I have a good grasp on that, let's move to common conditions we often encounter in the clinic or in the hospital, starting with when we order labs for these patients and we get back a creatinine and we see that our patient has an acute kidney injury. Well, Shreya, at this point in my career, I know that AKI or acute kidney injury is a fact of life. Right. <laughs> but I feel like it's kind of emo there. <laughs> yeah, man. That's why I went into nephrology fellowship, right? Uh, but I feel like the stakes are higher when it happens to a renal transplant patient, don't you? Oh, I very much feel that. I worry that I may be doing something to actively hurt that precious donated kidney. And it kind of pains me to see that creatinine of three or an SI units 265 micromoles per liter in a patient with a transplanted kidney. So, I'm wondering, when we do see that AKI in these patients, how should we approach it? Should I be changing something? The acute kidney injury in the transplant patient really is bread and butter nephrology with a few caveats. So I start with pre-renal, intra-renal, post-renal, just like you would with any person with two kidneys. Okay, phew, what a relief. But she did say there's some few caveats. So I'm curious, what are the different caveats or things to keep in mind for AKI in a transplanted kidney? So one of the hardest switches to flip that I've seen for patients after transplant is patients who've been on dialysis for five, six, seven, 
10 years they're for all of those years they've been told drink don't drink more than a liter or two in your intervening days between your dialysis days so practically nothing you know they are it's just driven into their heads don't drink too much don't drink too much don't get volume overload don't drink too much and then they get transplanted we're like you gotta drink you gotta drink there are people who really struggle with that is is really kind of going drinking a liter every couple of days to drinking a couple three liters every day huh i've never really thought about that but there's basically a whole frame shift that a patient has right after they get transplanted so in that pre-renal category asking if they're drinking enough is even more pressing so that's the pre-renal side of things and on the post-renal side of things we should be thinking about obstruction and getting an ultrasound of the transplanted kidney that usually sits on the right side of the pelvis by the way will give you a sense of whether or not they have obstruction yeah and usually when i'm looking at these ultrasound reports there's always something about hydronephrosis so I'm really curious, how do we triage hydronephrosis in a transplanted kidney? A lot of renal transplants actually have a little bit of hydro, and a little bit of hydro is never going to give you an AKI. So I hear mild hydro, and I go, I hear moderate hydro, and I immediately open up the image. Because really, it's such a subjective thing, mild, moderate, severe. Um, and I, you know, over the decades of doing this, I can look at a hydro and go, I call that moderate. That's not moderate. Get a Foley in that guy immediately. When you have hydro, I just think about the entire urinary system from the urethra right up to the renal pelvis. And where do we think the obstruction is? If you have a huge bladder and moderate hydro, person needs a Foley. If the bladder is decompressed and the hydro doesn't go away, the person needs a percutaneous compressed. And if that creatinine after some time is still high, what we learned from Dr. Pavlakis is that we should actually be reaching out to our interventional radiology colleagues, not our urology colleagues, since they can't do retrograde cystoscopy in a transplanted kidney. And often we, as transplant nephrologists, we go down and talk to them. Say basically, this guy was lingering around 2 to 2.4. He's now 3.6. Um, he's got moderate hydro. The Foley's been in a day. Nothing, the creatinine hasn't changed. Can you please do a PERC-NEF? They understand to do the PERC-NEF to decompress the renal pelvis. And then they can go back and squirt in a little dye and actually delineate exactly where the obstruction is. Um, usually it's somewhere along the ureter. The ureteric blood supply is a bit of a delicate thing. And despite the surgeon's best efforts, sometimes uh, ureteric strictures happen um, and they can lead the hydro with a decompressed bladder. Strictures happen. That might have to become my new catchphrase. But in all seriousness, the surgery for the transplants is a heroic feat, especially in the yeah. post-op period. You might encounter issues around urine leaks, urinomas, hematomas, and vascular issues too. More reason to get that ultrasound with Doppler. Yeah, right. Of course. So if I were to summarize so far, some of the salient point, points in the pre-renal bucket, we're going to have to ask our patients if they're drinking enough. And then the post-renal, we're going to really have to pay attention to that imaging. So I'm curious, any quick differences in the intrarenal causes? Yeah, Shreya. Unfortunately, there's a few things I didn't mention in particular about tacrolimus. That medication that's uh, keeping that kidney viable can be nephrotoxic. Ah, what a double-edged sword there, huh? There is a spectrum. The tacrolimus causes an intense intra 
vascular intrakidney vasoconstriction. And combined with hypotension from volume depletion, you can then result in an ischemic injury to the kidney. So it's like any pre-renal, if it's bad enough and goes on long enough, then it's no longer purely pre-renal. It turns into an ischemic injury to the kidney, which is infrarenal. Yeah, which gets back to what we were talking about in Pearls 1 and 2. Getting that tacrolimus trough at the right time helps us avoid nephrotoxicity. Yeah, ugh, those levels rear their head again. But I can imagine it's going to be hard to decipher if that AKI is really being caused by tacrolimus level or not. I actually have a patient in mind who came in with um, pretty bad norovirus and a lot of diarrhea and an AKI. His creatinine was normally 1.5. It was 2.2. He was a little hypotensive. His mouth was dry. He'd been pouring out diarrhea. Um, and we volume repleted him quite nicely. And the next day, we sent a tacro level. And while we're waiting for it to come back, you know, the creatinine is even a little bit higher. And we say, gee, if it was pure pre-renal, he got hydrated from the minute he hit the door. His bicarb is normalizing. His blood pressure is great. He feels better. Why isn't the creatinine better? And then that afternoon, the tacro level comes back. And instead of being five to seven, it's 18. That is not good. Uh, and not that we need to memorize any numbers, but I think it would be helpful to get some sense of target ranges for tacro levels that we're shooting for post-transplant. Early post-transplant, we target 10 to 12. Over the first six to 12 months, we get down to a target of five to seven. And for chronic transplant patients, their levels are either, their target levels are either four to six, five to seven, or six to eight. And that slight variation is actually important, number one, because the four to six is somebody who you're really on the downswing of immunosuppression. Six to eight is somebody maybe who just had a rejection episode and you want to keep them a little higher immunosuppressed. And the reason we have such a tight range is if your target is six to eight and you're 8.2, I'm going to leave you alone. But if your target is four to six and you're 8.2, I'm going to cut your dose maybe almost in half. The thing to keep in mind, though, is that this is going to be center-specific. Whether or not an institution uses steroids will lead them to have lower target troughs. And I do think there's a lot of art involved here where the target levels depend on the center, the patient, and the patient's individualized risk. Yeah, good to know. And I know we will talk about rejection more in Pearl 5, but where does rejection fit into all of this? Yeah, I, I would call that intrarenal as well. Rejection is a diagnosis of exclusion, of course. So if you've done the appropriate workup as above and you're at a loss, get that biopsy to diagnose acute rejection. Awesome. Okay, so I've really appreciated this quick pearl on AKI in the transplanted kidney and the fact that we should think about it in the same way we think about it in the normal kidney, but paying attention to how they're higher risk for strictures, dehydration from older habits of not drinking as much. And of course, in the intrarenal bucket, we have the diagnosis of exclusion with tachrotoxicity and acute rejection. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from 
Calorie Smart to Protein Plus to Keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Okay, now that we got AKI covered, the other thing that we often see in patients with kidney transplant, especially in the hospital or even in the clinic sometimes, is they're coming in with a fever. And I feel pretty comfortable saying that the general reaction often is to freak out a little bit inside. Shreya, I know exactly what you're talking about. And before my transplant yeah. rotation, I used to check the whole alphabet soup of EBV, CMV, BK, and every other combination of letters I could think of. <laughs> Can you explain to me why this person had CMV, EBV, and BK sent? And usually the answer is, well, you know, they're a transplant patient. You say, you know, that's not good enough. Oh, I think we're all guilty of this. Okay. Why don't we focus then on the viral serologies for the fever workup? And how can we be more thoughtful of which viral serologies to send off and which ones we can pump the brakes on? Often we'll say, well, this could be CMV, send a CMV PCR. And what shows up in the computer? CMV serologies. And CMV serologies are never the way to diagnose CMV in the immunosuppressed patient. It's the PCR. In fact, the serologies are already in the computer and most of our patients are IgG positive. Um, right, because they're adults. And if you look at their early post-transplant notes, you can see what their CMV risk profile is. So here, IgG means that their immune system has encountered the virus before. And by risk profile, we're trying to identify if a kidney recipient is particularly at risk of becoming symptomatic from CMV or EBV from the donor's kidney. Okay, so I can imagine the highest risk situation would be if the donor kidney is positive for CMV and the recipient is seronegative for CMV, aka the donor's infected with CMV and the recipient's never seen CMV before and never been infected. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, risk of disease is usually clearly laid out in one of the post-transplant notes. You might see something like D plus R minus, a shorthand for their sero status. In this case, D plus means donor positive. And R minus means recipient was negative. Nice. Okay. Thank you for helping me read those hieroglyphics. I'm assuming the lowest risk profile is going to be zero negative for the donor and zero negative for the recipient too. Yeah. Good intuition. And every other combination <laughs> is what I would call moderate risk. Great. Great. Okay. So the serologies are going to be in that transplant note and it's going to give us an idea of the risk of developing CMV. But it's going to be the viral load, it sounds like, that's going to really tell us if they're acutely viremic. That's especially true when the tests are several hundred dollars a pop. It's worth making sure that you're checking the PCR and not repeating a serology that they've already had. Yeah, uh, high value care indeed. Okay, so now that we understand the labs a bit more, if we back up and we think about the fever presentation, which fever presentations should we be sending a CMV PCR in? CMV is a very specific syndrome, and it, it, it usually shows up with fever, diarrhea, malaise, leukopenia, and a mild hepatitis. And usually CMV shows up in the first year or so post-transplant. So any one of those in somebody in the first year or so post-transplant, it's worth getting CMV viral load. Um, 
somebody who comes in with heavy pyuria and rigors, you're just wasting money getting a CMV PCR. Great. That's helpful. So CMV is going to be that typical viral syndrome, some diarrhea, leukopenia, liver enzyme abnormalities. Yeah, that's exactly right, Treya. So let's switch to EBV. We're usually sending EBV in the patient with classic mononucleosis symptoms of fever, swollen glands, and pharyngitis. But EBV does cause havoc and can increase the risk of lymphoma too. EBV PCR should be sent in somebody in whom you suspect either a post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder or a mononucleosis-like syndrome. So post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder, or PTLD, is a really specific condition. So what happens here is when the patient's T-cells are low from immunosuppression, EBV can come in and really amp up those B-cells, cause them to multiply out of control, as the name post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder suggests. Uh, Marcus, that sounds like a mouthful. I'm going to stick to PTLD. So PTLD, what it can look like is, of course, the fever, but also some malaise, weight loss, a new mass, or it can even turn out to be lymphoma in some cases. Yeah, it can be a real mess. But let's move on to our third virus, BK virus. Oh, all I remember about BK is that mnemonic that BK stands for bad kidney and it can cause renal failure and hematuria. I'm curious if that is accurate or what it really actually looks like. BK does not cause fever. And only if it's gone undetected for a while does it cause kidney injury. BK is a screening test in an asymptomatic person. We try to pick it up well before it causes um, uh, kidney inflammation and kidney injury. It does not cause fever or systemic symptoms. And if the person's within the first few years post-transplant, we're checking BK every one to three months anyways. BK almost never suddenly wells up and causes renal failure. And almost never causes fever. So to lump BK with CMV is to be ignorant as to what those viruses do. It's really exciting to see Dr. Pavlakis get all riled up about these viruses because she's one of the most understanding, compassionate docs around. And I can imagine her being in her shoes and watching these labs getting sent off left and right without stopping to think about the clinical syndrome. There's a lesson learned for me for sure. Yeah, totally. I can, I can only imagine. So it sounds like BK doesn't really present with any symptoms and is just brewing in the background and then can cause some renal failure and hemorrhagic cystitis. And we should at least be rest assured that BK is already being sent off by the transplant nephrologist. Treya, if you can just bear with me for a thought experiment. Let's say we have a patient okay. with a fever and flank pain and we rule that pyelonephritis in the native and donor kidney and have negative cultures and all of that and we have no idea what's going on, what do we do then? Then, you know, you could add it on just to dot your I's and cross the T's, but it almost never makes sense for somebody coming in with their first presentation of fever to get EBV. Like the EBV, where you're at your wit's end and you say, you know, let the dot all our I's and cross our T's, sure, get a CMV PCR. It really sounds like the key here is judicious ordering. I'm not saying never send a CMV PCR, but... I can't tell you how many times people have shown up with something that looks nothing like CMV, EBV, and certainly nothing like BK, and yet those tests are sent off. The PCRs last I looked, which was a long time ago, are like $300 each. It's just a waste. Okay. Well said. So takeaways here is to check the CMV PCR, not serology, 
when the patient has fever, diarrhea, malaise, leukopenia, mild hepatitis, especially if it's the first year of that transplant, since that's when they're the most immunocompromised. And I would check EBV PCR when they have infectious mononucleosis type symptoms, that fever, swollen glands, pharyngitis, or concern for lymphoproliferative disorders, especially if they have leukopenia or lymphadenopathy. And then last but not least, pretty much we don't have to send a BK viral load unless we know that they've had BK virus before. To close out the episode, let's put ourselves in the patient's shoes post-transplant and what their experience must be like. The two big things that come to mind are risk of cancer and possible rejection. That last one, rejection, has been on my mind this entire episode. And what does rejection really present with? Will the patient have a fever? Will they feel sick? The patients always want to know, what are the signs and symptoms of rejection? And my answer is, your labs. If you get to the point that you're having signs and symptoms of rejection, your kidney is hurting, you're peeing blood, you're uremic, it is almost too late to do anything about it. Oof. So when rejection starts to happen, there are no signs or symptoms. Labs are drawn every few months to trend that creatinine, and early on, they're drawn weekly. Wow. So what happens if we do see that creatinine bumping and where we start to get worried about rejection? The only way really to definitively, as it stands right now, diagnose rejection is with a kidney biopsy. So we can certainly be suspicious of rejection in, in patients that have you know, a creatinine that's rising who maybe reported their medicines or have something else going on. Um, but really the only way to know is to do a kidney biopsy. Okay. So thinking about our patient's experience post-transplant, yes, they're going to get frequent labs and really stay on top of their meds as much as possible to prevent rejection. What about the risk of cancer post-transplant? What should we know about cancer in these patients? Yeah. And just like we talked about in the kidney transplant preparation episode, a big part of keeping up with your health post-transplant is getting cancer screening. We start the script at the very first evaluation visit because it's important for patients to understand when going into transplant, both the risks and the benefits. Overall, on average, people live longer and better with a transplant compared to staying on dialysis, despite the increased risk of cancer and infection with the immunosuppression. So that's number one. Um, the other thing is that it's immune suppression-related cancers. So it's not cancers across the board that go up. Now, these immune suppressants do a really good job at protecting your new kidney from being attacked by the immune system. But it also decreases the immune system's other important functions, which is fighting infections and certain kinds of cancers. So the kinds of cancers which really start to go up in transplant patients, above and beyond just the normal risk of cancer in everybody, the, those are cancers like skin cancers and a rare cancer of the lymph node system called lymphoma. Those two go up a lot. And cancers related to infections like papillomavirus or um, herpes viruses. So as we give immunosuppression, the worry is that some early cancers are going to avoid detection by our patient's native immune system. Yeah. And I think one thing I didn't really appreciate with cancer screening was the importance of having annual dermatology visits and really getting that total body skin exam. So we encourage you because skin cancer is so common after transplant, even from now, even before you have a transplant, stop burning, stop tanning. 
you can go out in the sun as long as you're protected. And if you find you've got a tan line, you haven't put on enough sunblock, you need to put more on. So we really start the education process, no matter what the person's skin color is. <laughs> and that's very important. And the general population, it's more often basal than squamous, but unfortunately in the transplant population, it's more squamous than basal. And so that education starts right away. And I try to reassure people because they'll say, oh, you know, my uncle died of colon cancer. That was awful. And I say, actually, the big cancers like colon, lung, breast, and prostate, those aren't dramatically increased in transplant. They tiny bit increased, but those don't tend to be cancers controlled by the immune system. It's cancers controlled by the immune system, oddly, skin cancers, lymphomas, and then um, uh, virally mediated cancers like HCC and somebody with chronic um, hepatitis B or C that we are particularly concerned. So that's the, the baseline of the education we give patients. Um, and we don't transplant anybody who hasn't done their baseline cancer. Wow. So interesting. Now that she says it, it makes sense. The cancers that are kept in check by the immune system are the ones that we really need to be on the lookout for. And so my big takeaway in the patient's experience post-transplant is to do my part in asking them, hey, when was the last time you had labs done? Really do a good meta-adherence like we talked about in Pearl 2 to avoid rejection and checking in about their cancer screening. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Yeah. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team, your colleagues, give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And thank you to our peer reviewers, Dr. Sandy Nisa Sorkarn, John Francis, and Aditya Parwar. And thank you to Dr. Raul Maheshwari for the accompanying graphics. As always, we love hearing feedback. Email us at hello at coreampodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Thank you. Take care.